0: Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I am a host for the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking with Julian Baraka-Thomas about his book, Faking Liberties, Religious Freedom in American Occupied Japan, which is out from the University of Chicago Press this year, 2019. Faking Liberties challenges the commonsensical notion that the Japanese Empire granted its subjects no religious freedom, that Despite the legal provision in the Meiji Constitution of 1890 a free, affirming freedom of worship, um, that state Shinto was the law of the land, um, and that it was then the American-led occupation that finally granted freedom of conscience and freedom of worship to the benighted Japanese. Thomas shows first that this vision of history obscures internal debates about religious freedom in both Japanese and American circles, uh, but also that while the narrative in which religious freedom was bestowed upon Japan by the U.S. was in fact strategic and deeply embedded in a particular historical moment uh, and a particular geopolitical context, um, despite that it has no, uh, it's, it's had a, a long tail of consequences for our understandings of religion uh, since 1945. Uh, Faking liberties is divided into two deliberately paralleled parts, uh, which is something we talk about in the podcast, the first of which treats what uh, Thomas calls the Meiji constitutional period 1890 to 1945, and the second of which examines the occupation 1945 to 1952, and then the sort of long term consequences of the rhetorical moves made by the occupiers for the way that religion has been understood in the post-war period. Uh, The book argues that the particular uh, political circumstance of the Japanese occupation was instrumental in defining the religious versus secular and good versus bad religion binaries, uh, as well as the idea of religious freedom as a human right that's become hegemonic in much of the post-war West. Faking liberties is a challenging intervention into not only the historiography of modern Japan, but also religious studies more generally. Okay, so Dr. Thomas, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and I wanted to ask you to start, um, how it is that you came to this project? Uh, was this something that grew out of your graduate research? Uh,
1: yes. Um, so when I was in my uh, the first semester of my PhD training, um, I had this uh, situation where I had to give uh, sort of in-class presentations back-to-back in two seminars. And one of those seminars was um, a Japanese history course with uh, Sheldon Guerin, and another was a, a religious studies theory course uh, taught by Jeff Stout, and um, so you know I, th- because the presentations were back to back, I was you know pulling virtual all-nighters. I was um, trying to cram as much stuff as I possibly could together. And so for the history seminar, I was reading um, things about the Allied occupation of Japan, and for the religion seminar, I was reading stuff about um, secularism and particularly. Uh, a, a work by Talal Assad from 2003 called Formations of the Secular. So, in my like generally sleepless state, uh, I couldn't help but start thinking of these things together. And I noticed that um, there's this really common narrative that, uh, you know, pre war and wartime Japan had been dominated by a state religion, that religion ideologically contributed to um, uh, the sort of imperialism and militarism of um the 30s and 40s and then once the um, american occupiers swooped into japan at the end of the war they kind of got rid of the nasty state shinto and established democracy in its place um, that sort of triumphalist story uh starts to look really weird once you add a critical analysis of secularism into it so i by drawing on um, talal Assad's work i was thinking about how secularism is always a political project as Talal Asad describes it, and it is often um, a way of assessing the modernity or the sort of adequacy of people who are perceived to be non-modern. And so I was trying to figure out how the occupier's rhetoric about Japanese people as being mired in tradition, um, trapped by this sort of theocratic uh, religion, um, might actually be a... uh, An example of secularism as a political project, and therefore it would become really important to look at how religion um, and uh, how whatever was not religion were defined. Um, It would be important to look at those two things side by side uh, to really get an understanding of the occupation of Japan. So uh, that's what I started to do.
0: Yeah, great. So that that actually uh, does a great job of sort of putting some context uh onto the book itself. Um and I think that the well, I'm sorry, to onto the the project that became the book. It's also quite obvious from the, the book, especially in the introduction and the conclusion, that you're writing in a very sort of specific uh political context. Um I, I don't know if you'd like to talk about that as well.
1: Uh yeah. Um so You know, I'm very, uh, I tried to be very honest in the book, especially on those outer layers of the onion, if you will, um, about the sort of horizons of my own perception and and what prompted me to think about um, this project. So uh, I moved to Japan in January of 2002, um, which was, of course, just a few months after 9-11 and just a few months before uh or you know a, a little bit before the american invasion and occupation of iraq and so um the whole time that the bush administration was talking about um the war on terror and the axis of evil and um people who hate us for our freedoms and so forth uh i was thinking about that um kind of of necessity uh, in light of the history of the American occupation of Japan, now there are a lot of people in the Bush administration who looked at the quote-unquote success of the occupation of Japan and thought they could reproduce it in Iraq. Uh, and you know, historians, including John Dower, were kind of saying, "Hold on, the like the circumstances are totally different." And and of course, Dower was was utterly right on that score. Uh, but. I was interested in both similarities and differences, in the, um, the, the, and so a similarity would be this rhetoric of spreading freedom to benighted others abroad, and specifically the idea that if, you, if only you give people religious freedom, then all other sort of uh, rights and liberties will follow, or if only you give people religious freedom, then they will learn how to um, engage in uh, a robust democratic process. Uh, and and my research um, in this book shows that you know that uh, sort of wishful thinking um, really got the occupiers in a lot of trouble, but it also overlooked a long history of rhetoric um, and debate about religious freedom in Japan before the occupiers even got there.
0: so yeah, thank you for uh, thank you for that context as well. Um, so jumping into the the book itself and into the introduction, um you write that. This book juxtaposes the pre-surrender religious freedom legal regime with that of the Allied occupation, uh, which you've already started to talk about, uh, to show that pre-war and wartime Japanese practices of religious freedom were extraordinarily normal. And you also write that Japanese governance in the first half of the 20th century was repressive because it was secularist, not because it was dominated by Shinto as a state religion. And so in part from these two quotes, it seems to me that you're kind of fighting a war on two fronts here. One against uh, conventional wisdom in the field of Japanese history and the other against a sort of common sense in religious studies. Um First of all, have I got that right? And second of all, um, what is it that you're sort of objecting to here if if I'm reading that correctly?
1: Yeah. um, Thanks. And and you do have it correct. Uh, It's a a complicated sort of argument that I'm trying to make. And as you say, I'm sort of fighting on on two fronts. So let me unpack it as best I can. The first thing that uh, has been bothering me for some time, and this is not just Japanese history, but Japanese studies in general, is. Um, I think that we buy into the notion of Japanese uniqueness a bit too much. And so one of the things that I was arguing against in that first quote um, is this notion that um, pre-war and wartime Japan was weird and we had to fix it and make it normal. Um, If you look at Japan in the broader global context of the time, then you'll see that The type of religious freedom that's guaranteed in the Meiji Constitution is not not actually all that unusual. And the debates that are going on within Japan at that time are really, really similar to debates that are happening in other countries, including countries like the United States. So. uh, you know, at the time of the occupation, the occupiers had to justify um, their policies. And so they basically had to tell a story that was a false story. They had to make up a history for Japan that never existed. Um, and unfortunately, the story the occupiers told has ended up really influencing a lot of history writing since. And so I think that a lot of historians, without really meaning to, have sort of bought into this idea that. Um, governance in uh, pre-war and wartime Japan was somehow weird or strange. And, and to the extent that historians are paying attention to religion or using religion as an explanatory var- variable, um, some people sort of uh, fell into this trap of saying, well, religion was the ideological power that made the Japanese people do all that bad stuff. And I want to be really clear here just to pause for a moment and say, yes, the Japanese state, like all states, did really bad stuff. Um, and, and so this, is, this should not be read as a sort of apology uh, for pre-war and wartime Japan, but actually to try and say what's creepy is not that a religion was allowed to do political work, but it was the designation of something as not religion that did the really important work um, that uh, a number of people have, have talked about, including through the language of state Shinto. Now, the other thing um, you mentioned about the sort of conventional wisdom of of, uh, religious studies, um, I think that scholars of religion are often inclined to look for religious explanations for things, um, sometimes to a fault. So a lot of scholars uh, of Japan who focus on religion have been really attracted to this idea of state Shinto because it suggests that it's really important for that people look at our work and and really understand our work. And I totally get that motivation. I'm very sympathetic to it. Um, But this sort of functionalist understanding that um, religion makes people do political stuff, I think uh, misses a point, which is that you have to first establish what counts as religion, or, or I should say, who says what is religion. And it's only by establishing that that you can move on to look at the political effects of that kind of decision making. So um, it, what, what you might say about this is that I'm trying to um, go back one sort of conceptual step before we get to the functionalist idea of state Shinto made people do bad things um, to say, well, how did people distinguish between Shinto and not Shinto or religion and not religion? And, and that's really the project of the book.
0: Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you. Um, so I wanted to uh, talk about two other sort of major points that I see you uh, making sort of overall. Um, and one that I see you making sort of particularly uh, vigorously is, and, and you've sort of touched on this already, that the religious and secular are interdependent, imb- imbricated by definition, right? Um, and, you, you, and, and on top of that, you appear to be making a similar point about freedom and discipline. Um, in the conclusion, you write that paradoxically, freedom works thanks to the power of the law to constrain behavior. Those who are free to be free are designated as such through the coercive capacities of legislation and jurisprudence. And so do I have that right, sort of seeing the, the the interrelationship between those two points?
1: Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I think, honestly, when I started the project, I um, was focused more on the religion side of things. But uh, as I really tried to lay out in the epilogue, um, the, the, there's a sort of obsession with the definition of freedom and the beneficiaries of freedom that's underlying all of all of this book. So, um, in what, what's sometimes called critical secularism studies or critical secularity studies, uh, it largely draws on the work of Talal Asad, who I mentioned before, but also a number of other people. Um, there's a, a notion that we can't talk about religion um without looking at the sort of conceptual formations that allow something to come into being as religion and so um, we need to look at whatever people are designating as not religion um, and that could be the secular but it could also be other things like sometimes it's science sometimes it's words like superstition or magic um, that uh, allow the concept of religion to even make sense at all um, so like, like many concepts, uh, religion depends on its others. I don't necessarily want to say opposites because it's not always a binary, but, but others like magic and science and, and the secular and so forth. Um, I think that uh, in that regard, um, religion, both as a facet of law, but also as a facet of academic study, requires a sort of secular frame, requires uh, the assumption that something that is not religion can exist. And that religion can be isolated in space or in time, uh, and then whatever is left over is, you know, the secular or the scientific or, or academic inquiry or whatever. Now, in terms of the discipline and freedom point, um, thinking specifically about law for a moment, freedom is something that sounds great on paper. Uh, you can talk about uh, freedom in all these ways. And, uh, you know, there are plenty of Americans who want to say, you know, we're a country of freedom. Um, but I think that when it comes down to it, that freedom is only guaranteed to the extent that we allow the rule of law to let it come into existence, which means that we all have to basically assent to, um, giving up some of our freedoms so that we can all have freedom. So what does this look like? It looks like, you know, um, in the case of freedom of speech, uh you may be offended by somebody else's opinions, but you allow people to uh, express those opinions uh because of because, rec- because of the recognition that you may be in a in a position of wanting to express something that other people would would find repugnant or abhorrent. And and the idea of the repressive power of the state comes in where we actually see police um uh, the the police capacity to wield violence being demonstrated uh, right at the moments when people are making contentious claims. Uh, the obvious example here is white supremacist rallies and marches, where the power of the state is um, used to protect the right of these people to uh, share ideas that many of us, I would hope most of us, find repugnant. Um, and so, you know the there's this sort of weird thing where you can have a line of cops standing in front of white supremacists um, and protecting them. And it seems like the state is tacitly condoning that behavior. But what's actually happening is that the state is sort of um, protecting the right of all people to uh, present their ideas in a public forum and so forth. Uh, So uh, I find that very uncomfortable um, and also important um, but as a person, um, you know, as a as a non-white person in the United States, the, the American language of freedom also resonates with me in a particular way, because it's very clear that over the vast majority of American history, a person with a body like mine was not going to be a beneficiary of freedom uh, in that the, the police power of the state would actually be used um, to deny my sort of body Um, the right to freedom while granting it to other people, especially white men. Um, So uh, I've been trying to sort of wrestle with these um, uh, sort of emancipatory and repressive aspects of freedom because I think otherwise we don't really get a good sense historically of how freedom works in American history or in Japanese history.
0: So finally, before we uh, jump into the body of the book, um, I, I wanted to uh, ask you one sort of definitional question. Um, and, and as you know, we have a sort of mixed audience on the podcast. Um, and so you, you use the term religion making a number of times. And I assume that you know many of your colleagues in religious studies are obviously going to know what this means. Uh, but for the larger audience, can you tell us what you're talking about here?
1: Yes. Um, so... Religion making is an idea that I would basically situate within mostly religious studies and critical secularisms literature um, from the the two thousands on, and really basically the idea is that um, religion is not something that exists out of time; uh, it's not something that is eternal or unchanging. That it's something that should and um, and that could and, and, and should, can and should be historicized, uh, which means that we should think about how religion works as a, a facet of um, power and domination and so forth. Um, but the concept of religion making points to another thing, and I already sort of alluded to this a bit, but it's to not assume that religion is just a mask for other kinds of activity. So um, since you know, the late 19th and early 20th centuries, if not earlier, we've had theorists, uh, famous theorists like Marx, for example, who've assumed that religion is a mask for some other activity, uh, economic activity in Marx's case. Uh, and if we think about Freud, then it's, you know, some sort of uh, repressed uh, desires and so forth. But what what's important is that that hermeneutics of suspicion always assumes that religion can be reduced to some other thing. And I don't think that that's the way religion works as a, as a social fact, a socially dependent fact, but a, as a social fact. So the, those of us who talk about religion making are interested in the ways that a person makes what we might call, for lack of a better term, a politically motivated decision to define one thing as religion and another thing as not religion. And then... Uh, a person who's interested in religion-making will not only track that uh, definitional moment, but also the ramifications of that moment, um, which can go far beyond that one person or that one interest group, but um, will have trickle-down trickle, uh, trickle down or, or, or branching-out effects um, that affect a lot of other people. So it matters, for example, whether, um, you know, Islam gets treated as religion or not religion in the contemporary United States. There are some people, including people in the uh, U.S. government, who want to say that Islam is not a religion, and so therefore, Muslims do not deserve the protections of religious freedom. That matters. There's something deeply at stake there, and there's a long history of that uh, in the United States with um, questions about uh, things like Buddhism and Catholicism um, falling into the category of religion or not falling into the category of religion. And of course, in Japan, the big one and, and one that I spend a lot of time on in my book is, is Shinto.
0: Right. OK, thank you. That's very helpful. Um, so. One of the sort of innovative and fascinating things I think you've done with the book um, is laying it out into deliberately parallel parts. So structurally, I thought this was a really interesting strategy. And it was as a reader, it was, it was challenging um, and refreshing um, and frankly, quite effective in sort of laying out your argument. Can you tell us about the two parts and about how you came to structure the book this way?
1: Yes. So uh, to be honest, this was not the original form of the manuscript. When I sent it out for review, uh, it was maybe two uneven parts um, that did not have this very um, almost artificially um, parallel structure. Uh, But as I got my reader's reports back, I realized that um, to really make this claim that Japan was not weird, but was normal, I had to put Japan and the United States side by side in a couple of different ways. So the book is organized chronologically, chapters one through eight, but um, chapters one through four deal with whatever was going on in Japan before the occupation started. I also look at um, uh, territorial Hawaii Uh, and then uh, chapters five through eight, look at the occupation itself, including some gesturing to things that were going on in the United States um, and US foreign policy and, and so forth. So um, I wanted readers uh, to be able to see that the occupation narrative that I'm arguing against um, is false, but I could only prove that by really giving a lot of time to the um, the pre-war period. So I had to do like at least half of the book about that. But I also wanted readers to see that what happened with the onset of the occupation uh, was characterized both by continuity and rupture. So there's Um, The Americans are uh, reproducing some of the dynamics that had characterized the Japanese uh, sort of what I call the Meiji constitutional regime. Um, But then they're also making some radical breaks. And in in doing that, they're surprising themselves because they're breaking from American practice and precedent. Uh, And so. There are a couple of different, there are three different reading strategies that one can use for the book. You can read it chronologically from beginning to end. Um, I think that's going to be really intuitive for uh, historians, especially who are interested in change over time. Um, But for people who are interested in the occupation as a political project, I recommend that they start in Chapter 5, read through Chapter 8, and then go back to the prehistory of the occupation to see why I'm so vehement in some of my claims. And there's a third strategy that I uh, propose in the introduction, which is um, to read thematically. So chapter one and chapter five are both interested in the question of secularism and religion making, uh, particularly around the concept of uh, Shinto. And so those two can be read as a unit, as can chapters two and six and three and seven and so forth.
0: Yeah. So let's jump into um, part one, uh, which is that uh, pre-occupation section um, and you've uh, rather cleverly named it a pre-occupation with religious freedom. And yes, I did to see what you did there. Um, so this, you, you describe this uh, section um, as you know, showing the uh, oppressive nature of, of the war years as a reality, but also uh, pointing out that the claim that Japan lacked religious freedom uh, prior to the occupation as being sort of simply incorrect. And you've already you know, sort of gestured to this quite strongly. Um, so let's jump into chapter one. Um, and in chapter one, uh, you're really talking about, uh, as the chapter title uh, states, the Meiji constitutional regime as a secularist system. So how was religion defined in the Meiji constitution? And, so, and of course, I guess by, uh, uh, by definition, that also means how was secularism defined, um, even if it was implicit. And was there anything at all exceptional about this arrangement? Um, and how was that definition put into practice and with what consequences?
1: Great. Uh, it's a complicated question, especially because uh, religion is actually technically not defined in the Meiji Constitution, but it's talked about uh, specifically in the in Article 28, which is the Religious Freedom Clause. Uh, and, and you know, very famously or infamously, uh, that clause says that um, Japanese subjects, um, to the extent that it doesn't infringe on their duties as subjects and, and does not, you know, violate peace and order, Shall enjoy religious freedom and uh, you know in mostly american historiography uh this clause has been seen as a sort of sneakily um, granting religious freedom with one hand while taking it away with the other but what's um and that's because of this the, the sort of like qualifying clauses there but what's in, in, in important to note is that the wording of the Meiji constitution is actually very similar to the wording of constitutions that were generated in Europe at around the same time. Um, And those uh, constitutional clauses about religious freedom were actually usually more stringent than the Meiji constitution. Um, Jason Josephson Storm talks about this in his 2012 book, The Invention of Religion in Japan. But, um, you know, uh, he, he looks at the constitutions of Norway and Spain and so forth and says that often they designate a state religion, which Japan, Japan's constitution does not do, um, and they also designate particular groups as being forbidden, uh, often that uh, unfortunately falls on, on um, Judaism or Jews. Uh, and even um, relatively expansive or, or, or latitudinarian or liberal constitutions like th- uh, that of the United States um, in, in jurisprudence, uh, if we look at the jurisprudence from around this time period, we see the U.S. also making similar claims about um, violating um, uh, conventional morality and so forth. So the big um, the big thing here is cases from the late 19th century in the U.S. where um, the uh, Church of Latter Day Saints is being um, is the the Supreme Court sort of recognizes um, the Uh, ability of of Mormons to um, technically practice plural marriage in theory, but in practice, that violates uh, the the sort of moral code of the United States, and so they say that it's forbidden. Um, And this is uh, actually very similar as an interpretation of constitutional law to what is written directly in the letter of the law in the Japanese constitution. Okay, so then the other part of your question was, well, what are the effects of this? I want to I want to bookmark because it certainly already popped up in some people's minds that, yes, there is another clause that designates the emperor as sacred and inviolable. This, too, for um, contemporary monarchies uh, was was almost boilerplate language. There's something about needing to uh, justify why we even have a monarch in the first place. And most European monarchies did this with reference to the church, uh, you know, Church of England, for example. Uh, or, or, you know, Norway, Netherlands, that sort of thing. Um, But then we, and in in, in Japan, there's the same sort of legal anxiety of trying to figure out why we even have an emperor in the first place and why we should all treat this guy as being important. Um, But the other thing is that because there's that clause about not um, infringing on duties and subjects and not violating peace and order, that always gives the state the right to dictate that something has violated peace and order. And I really want to stress here, that is not unique to the Meiji constitution. That is a characteristic of every secular constitution that includes a religious freedom clause. There's always something in there about the constraints that the state may place on one's ability to profess uh, her religion or to engage in free exercise. um, you know, And this goes back to this earlier part of our conversation about the, the tension or mutual imbrication of freedom and repression, in that uh, in granting freedom, there's always going to be some way in which the state um, arrogates to itself the right to also suppress things that might infringe on peace and order.
0: Yeah, thank you. So I, I wanted to uh, jump ahead to chapter two, uh, where the, the chapter title is Who Needs Religious Freedom? Um, And I guess my question is going to be, would you like to answer the question in your own chapter title? Um, And and to sort of add to that, what was the context in which uh, modern Japanese Buddhists in particular began to think about religious freedom and the proper positionality of religion vis-a-vis the state?
1: Yes. Okay. so um religious freedom enters japan as a diplomatic category uh and again um jason josephson has written about this uh trent maxey's 2014 book the greatest problem goes into this in great detail uh and so um i could sort of piggyback on the work of others uh in 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 recognizing that religious freedom enters japan as a sort of diplomatic and political problem where to prove that um, japan is civilized uh the architects of the meiji state have to um, grant religious freedom to foreign subjects who are uh, on Japanese soil, but they also, by uh, 1889, when the constitution is promulgated, they also need to say yes, we are a civilized country that grants religious freedom to our to our citizen subjects. Um, but I I chose the question who needs religious freedom because I wanted in that uh, I wanted it to have um, the the double sense of of the way you could read that sentence both. Who needs religious freedom as a practical matter? Like who is 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 desperate for being recognized in the eyes of the state? And then also uh, an attitude that I see on the part of a lot of Buddhists that, um, in the at, around the turn of the 20th century is like, who needs religious freedom? Like we don't really need that. Uh, it's just a, a distraction from what we really need. And so I focus on um, a few different uh, political battles and legal battles that happen in rapid succession uh, in. Uh, the, the the period right around the turn of the 20th century. One of them is a battle over who gets to be a prison chaplain, uh, which I can go into, but I'll, I'll kind of skip over for now. Um, another is uh, a, a battle over whether uh, a bill will be passed by the government and um, that will restrict or, or change the relationships between religions and the state. And one of the ideas that comes out of this is uh, the notion that Um, Japan should not designate a state religion because that could be really problematic and would violate religious freedom, but um, should designate what's called um, an officially recognized religion. The word in Japanese is much easier. It's koninkyo. So that's oyake, mitomeru, and then oshieru. Um, So the, uh, the koninkyo is this idea that the state will designate some kinds of religions as being Basically recognize and the state's cool with them. And anybody who doesn't have those, that sort of recognition wouldn't get the same privileges as the officially recognized religion. Now, unsurprisingly, the people who really like this idea are Buddhists and they like it because it means that they will be able to assert um, privileges and preferential treatment over christians the buddhists are really not happy with the influx of christians and christianity in japan and so they're trying to figure out a way to um, stake out their territory and maintain it um, but uh, there are a small number of progressive buddhists who advocate a different idea which is that the state should get out of um, religions and affairs entirely and um, and so they're adopting what I call uh, a latitudinarian approach to religious freedom. That's a long word, but basically they want a sort of laissez-faire approach to religious freedom where the state um, grants maximal freedom to individuals and, and to groups. Um, so there's a, a question of scale built in here, um, who's domestic, who's foreign, but also does the law focus on individuals or groups? And then there's also a question of whether we're talking about rights or privileges. And I argue that basically a lot of Buddhists, the majority of Buddhists are kind of focusing on privileges, uh, particularly customary rights um, and preserving those in law. Whereas this tiny minority of Buddhists um, focuses more on individual liberties. And that actually sets up the stage for a lot of tensions in debates that take place over the next couple of decades.
0: Yeah. And so uh, chapter three actually continues this very interesting um, sort of domestic foreign uh, uh, dynamic. This is that you started to talk about in chapter two, um, but moves us to the territory of Hawaii, uh, where you talk about the experience of Japanese American immigrants or Japanese uh, migrants to the Hawaiian territory. Um, And in this uh, chapter, if I'm reading it correctly, you sort of you outline, I guess, three major arguments. Uh, In one of them, you compare U.S. Japanese policies on religious freedom Uh, A second one, you talk about the role of religious, uh, that religious governance already played in discourses about the Japanese level of civilization, something you've already alluded to. Um, And the third argument is about religious freedom as a legal matter in American courts, um, sort of through the experience of these Japanese American Buddhists. Um, Can you unravel and explain each of these three arguments for us, please?
1: Sure, and I'll try to be brief as I do so. Um, So uh, I, let me, let me start with the civilization piece because I already mentioned it and so it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of the easiest one. Um, after the, uh, our, the the oligarchs of the, the Meiji government promulgated the um, the Constitution that didn't solve the, the diplomatic problem that they had they still excuse me had to um, prove to the international community that Japan really had religious freedom this was Um, particularly uh, important when it came to the right of Christian missionaries to proselytize in Japan. And so uh, I looked uh, a bit at missionary magazines where we have missionaries writing back to their audiences at home saying, yes, we have religious freedom, or we wish we had more religious freedom, and and so forth. Notably, a lot of times they're saying, don't worry about us, guys, the Japanese state is treating us okay. That's important. Um, But then uh, the... The other thing is that, even though missionaries are writing in this way, there's a lot of suspicion in the American press about what's called Mikadoism. Um, you know, I think this word had entered the American imaginary because of the Gilbert and Sullivan opera, the Mikado, which uh, was uh, i think initially staged in in uh, the u k in eighteen eighty five but then um, was eventually staged in in American theaters as well. Um, But then uh, in the early 20th century, we have this explosion of articles and and short pamphlets about Mikadoism uh, as a sort of uh, religion of the Japanese people that has them slavishly devoted to their divinized emperor. Uh, And most of this is just like Americans and and British people chuckling at those weird Japanese people over there. And sometimes it's actually used um, not so much to talk about Japan, but to make it a case for what was called rationalism at the time, like this notion that religion is irrational. And so Japan was a good place to to use to make that kind of case. But Mikadoism takes on this other meaning um, in in the context of American debates about immigration and about rights for religious minorities. So I looked at the um, territory of Hawaii because that's where we have the largest Japanese population. And in the wake of World War I, we also have um, debates about Japanese language schools and labor disputes where um, the idea of Mikadoism comes to be used by a number of prominent um, people representing the, the sort of white landowning class of the uh, Hawaiian archipelago to say that um, Buddhist, Japanese Buddhists are unassimilable. Um, they're being trained in uh, as sort of children are being trained as these sort of little insurgents in these Japanese language schools that are um, extracurricular, by the way. they're they're purely voluntary schools. And so um, the white landowner class uh, makes this very uh, vehement case uh, case that the language schools need to be abolished. um and uh, and so, They effectively do that. They don't outright abolish them, but they they pass a bunch of laws that makes it virtually impossible for the schools to operate. Japanese Buddhists mobilize and they mobilize with the language of religious freedom that's provided in the American Constitution. So they use American laws and American ideals and and especially what's understood already at that time to be the most American ideal. And they use it against um, their oppressors and they win. Um, They win at the Supreme Court, but notably... They don't win with the language of religious freedom. They're, um, they get galvanized around the language of religious freedom, but um, due to uh, some, some murky circumstances that may have to do with legal strategy and may have to do with um, with American prejudice, ultimately what wins the day uh, at the Supreme Court in um, February 1927 is the notion that uh, as American citizens due to birthright citizenship, Japanese people, um, are, uh, afforded equal protection under the 14th Amendment. So, uh, their, uh, their, ultimately, I argue that their attempt to wield the language of religious freedom is unsuccessful because, um, There, that has to sort of take a second seat to other things about uh, American hierarchies of of race and ethnicity. Um, But nevertheless, it's important that religious freedom is a crucial component in these Japanese people who are being deemed un-American in proving themselves as American. And of course, American history shows that they are not the only immigrant group that has had Um, To make appeals to religious freedom and it has sometimes tried and failed to be recognized as having uh, religious freedom or enjoying religious freedom
0: yeah, um so I want to jump us back to uh to, to Japan's sort of domestic issues uh with chapter uh 4 where you, which is called in the absence of religious freedom and this gets us back to the sort of internal debates uh particularly with Buddhists. Um one of the goals of this chapter uh, as I understand it is to problematize the standard accounts about Buddhists' uh, comportment after 1925 as the state became increasingly illiberal. Um, so, can you tell us what those standard narratives are, and and how they're missing the point? Yes.
1: So, um, in both sort of general, uh, you know, histories of Japan, and then also in um, in in people in the work of people who are talking about Buddhism specifically, up until pretty recently, it was very common to encounter some sort of Variation on the notion that Buddhists ceased to be good Buddhists when they started to collaborate with the Japanese state, that a real Buddhist would have um, you know, resisted the Japanese state, um, that Buddhists should have martyred themselves uh, in complaints ab- uh, about um, especially uh, warmongering and, and so forth, um, uh, should have allowed themselves to be thrown in prison, uh, and any Buddhist that chose to work within the confines of the, um, of the early Showa political regime was somehow a failed Buddhist. This is a, an account that has become less popular, although we still see it being reproduced. And it's based on the notion that doctrine is like a computer program that dictates what people should do. Doctrine doesn't work that way at all. Usually people engage in some sort of political activity and then they go back to doctrine and find some way to rationalize that political activity. And so one of the things that I was doing in this chapter was um, to look at the idea that, um, you know, Buddhist resistance should have been based on progressive or or civil libertarian principles um, or that when Buddhists uh, chose to be complicit with state initiatives, that that was them sort of throwing their commitment to liberal principles out the window. Um, And then I also look at this uh, this sort of ideal of martyrdom that that all Buddhists should basically have allowed themselves to be killed or thrown in prison, which is kind of a ridiculous claim, but it's one that we see in some scholarship. Um, So uh, I'm I'm using sort of a back and forth between two prominent Buddhists who kind of sit at the edges of the clerical and lay worlds. Um, They're uh, two men who had been very good friends who then have a bitter falling out over um, this uh, debate around whether the state should pass comprehensive religious organization or sorry, religious legislation. Um, And and the the law in question is the law that we now know as the excuse me, we now know as the um, Religious Organization's Law of 1939. So the the government is trying repeatedly to um, pass this law or some variation on this law. What's striking is that we do have examples of Buddhists resisting the law, but they're resisting it because they say it's too progressive, it's too egalitarian. A good religion's law is going to give privileges to Buddhists and Buddhism. Um, So that's counterintuitive. And then we have um, Buddhist, uh, I, I use the, the figure of Ando Masazumi, who is a, a Buddhist priest turned politician. Uh, in the post-war, he goes on to become Minister of Education. Uh, but Ando uh, sort of stands in for me as a Buddhist who is working within the, the corridors of power. And he's using his position in, in between the religious and political worlds to say, we protect religion best if we pass a law like this one. Um, and it's actually Ando who gives the um, the religious organizations law its name um, by saying it's about religious organizations or about religious bodies. He's trying to distinguish it from um, trying to control religion itself. That makes sense to Ando. I'm not sure it makes sense to everybody else around him. And then finally, um, I, after tracing the sort of back and forth between these two guys and, and their bitter words for each other and stuff, I uh, I look at the founder of the group now known as Soka Gakkai, known at that time as Soka Kyoiku Gakkai, uh, Makiguchi Tsune Saburo. And uh, I I look at him because he's an example of somebody who sort of martyred himself uh, for his commitment to Buddhism. He's imprisoned by the special Higher police. Uh, he refuses to recant. And eventually he dies in prison in 1944. So the standard narrative, including in a lot of Soka Gapkai materials up until recently, was that Makiguchi was a martyr for religious freedom. But I go back to the special higher police interrogation record, and I show that Makiguchi doesn't care about religious freedom at all. He cares about the Lotus Sutra. And so he, um, in his interrogation, he keeps talking about how everybody in Japan must venerate the Lotus Sutra, which is decidedly not a sort of like... Um, uh you know a, a rally for religious freedom um, instead he's saying that everybody must venerate this one particular this one religious text and religious freedom is utterly kudaranai. it's it's um it's meaningless in the face of the wisdom of the lotus sutra so these are all ways of pushing back against this idea that buddhists had one particular way that they should have engaged with the state by showing this diversity of Buddhist approaches to the concept of religious freedom, the idea of comprehensive religious legislation, uh, and, and, and the, the constitution, I'm trying to show that Buddhists had lots of choices. And there was no set way that they had to interpret Buddhist doctrine or that they would understand religious freedom in any particular way out of a commitment to a particular doctrine.
0: Yeah. So um, I want to, before we move on to the uh, second half of the book, to to challenge you on one thing uh, here, because I think it's sort of central to your polemic, and I'm sure it's on the minds of some of our listeners. Um, So in, in this uh, particular chapter you talk you're, you're dealing specifically with Buddhist sources right as you've said and you and, and you write that rather than suggesting that Buddhists saw themselves as subordinate to an ascendant state Shinto uh, my sources show that Shinto was never fully established as a state religion in the way that the occupiers would later claim and of course you know this is really central to your argument um, and so I want to ask you um, whether you think it might be problematic to use only as you say Buddhist sources which because they clearly have a political agenda vis-a-vis the status of uh, religion more generally religious organizations at their religion buddhism um in other words you know is is there a a a potential bias problem here and how have you negotiated that uh in the book
1: yeah i'm really glad you asked that question and to be honest if i had had another chapter to give to each section of the book it's already a long book um you know if i'd had another chapter to give i would have added more material about christians and also um, shrine priests uh, who we now associate with shinto um, although that's a, that's a bit of an ambiguous um, term in this period uh, as well as the groups that sometimes get called uh, new religions i prefer to think of them as a sort of marginal or marginalized religious movements. Um, i have stuff to say about any of those um, shrine priests for example often saw the state policies of managing shrines uh, through shrine mergers and stuff like that as being oppressive and um, and, and interfering with their work. Shrine priests also um, performed uh, what we might think of as religious rituals for individuals on the fly, even though they were working supposedly at state institutions that were designated as being not religious because they needed the income. Um, when it comes to Christians, uh, there's a uh, there's a, a real complicated situation because Christians in Japan until around 1940 are always sort of subordinate to the non-Japanese missionaries who are resident in Japan, and then when the missionaries leave around 4041, um, suddenly the the Christian Kyodan, you know, the sort of uh, the the Church of Christ in Japan. Has a new degree of autonomy. I talk about this very briefly in the book, but um, it it uh, it gives Christians a way to negotiate with the Japanese state directly. Um, and so, I I think that there's I I think these things are important. I tried to sprinkle little examples throughout in in different chapters. So, for example, in chapter one. Um, I was looking at the ways that people were designating shrine rights as being not religious. And I included, um, a, a, uh, a papal sort of announcement, um, saying that the Catholic church had deemed that participation in shrine rights was not religious. It was an act of patriotic, um, expression or patriotic duty, and therefore was not in conflict with Catholic teachings. Um, that's one place where we can see that it's not the Japanese government that's dictating, um, what counts as religious freedom but we actually have clerical the highest clerical authorities in this case the catholic church stating that shrine rites are not religious and so um yeah given more time and space i would have also you know included more of these kinds of examples but i hoped that by including small ones here and there that people could um, fill in the gaps and then of course one always wants uh, to sort of facilitate future research, and so I would love to see somebody else go back, you know, take the kinds of arguments that I'm making based primarily on Buddhist sources and and extend them to to other groups, including marginalized groups and, and Christians and and shrine priests. The one other thing that I'll say is just that I chose Buddhist sources in part because I had been doing a lot of reading in that. Uh, already, but also because Buddhists were the dominant religion in Japan numerically, and I really wanted to implicitly draw a connection to American Christian majoritarian rhetoric about religious freedom. So there's a there's a, a, a strategic. Uh, uh, thing behind my my um, choice of Buddhism and Buddhist there.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that, that clears that up for me uh, quite nicely. It's also, I think, maybe the first time that we've had a uh, call for applications for graduate students on the podcast, because it, it certainly sounds like you're recruiting. <laughs> so graduate students, if you're out there. Yeah. Uh... Uh, so let's move on to uh, uh, part two, uh, which is the occupation of religious studies. Again, I, I kind of, I, I think there's a pun in there, uh, having now read the book. Um, but it, it obviously it focuses on occupation policy Uh, regarding religion, and in particular, sort of, um, the the way that religion uh, becomes an instrument, I guess, is maybe too strong a word, I don't know if you'd agree with that or not, but an integral part of American foreign policy. Um, And so chapter five is state Shinto as heretical secularism. Um, And in this chapter, you write that in the context of the occupation's ambitious reform goals, uh, religious freedom had to become a human right. Um, So that's a pretty strong uh, statement there, and I'd love to know uh, why that was. And then what about uh, these uh, goals and the particular uh, situation of the occupation gave rise to this necessity? And of course, how did that sort of play out?
1: Yeah, so um, the first part of this is that uh, even before America and Japan are technically at war, um, there is, of course, American support of Um, anti-totalitarian efforts uh, on other shores. And um, in his State of the Union address uh, in um, January of 1941, um, Franklin Roosevelt uh, outlined what he called the Four Freedoms as a rationale for why Americans were supporting these efforts overseas. Um, The Four Freedoms were freedom of speech, freedom of everyone to worship God in his own way, uh, freedom from fear and freedom from want. Um, and Roosevelt in that speech, in a last-minute addition that I think only made it into the penultimate draft of the speech, um, he said something along the lines of, you know, we uh, fight to um, protect these, these freedoms, um, these fundamental human rights. And that's the first time that human rights enters American um, foreign policy discourse in any substantive way. And so again, you, you, you fast forward. Um, you know, eleven months later, Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor, and immediately this Rooseveltian language of the Four Freedoms and also human rights comes to be a rationale for why we fight. And there, there's very quickly a distinction that's drawn between the Japanese enemy. Um, who doesn't like freedom, and the American soldier who does like freedom. And, of course, lots of people have done great work on the propaganda, um, John Dower's War Without Mercy being one of them. So in this, um, the American side of the propaganda war, uh, we have a lot of focus on this language of the four freedoms or of human rights. But the problem is that human rights are totally inchoate at this point. Nobody really knows what they mean. And, in fact, Roosevelt's speechwriters had no idea what he meant. Um, A lot of other people are really... Uh, cautious. And let's not forget, America is segregated. uh, And if you start throwing around the language of human rights, then you uh, take apart uh, some of the premises that undergird America's carefully constructed caste system. So uh, human rights makes a lot of people, including a lot of Americans, uncomfortable domestically, but it's great for foreign policy when you're trying to say, this is what we do well, and this is what those guys don't do well. Um, So in the context of the occupation, we have um, the occupier's orders are first to uh, guarantee, you know, proclaim human rights and civil liberties. Um, and they need to make sure that ultra militarism and nationalism are not allowed to, quote, hide behind the cloak of religion. Uh, and then we also have the need for, um, the the occupiers to uh, this this is a sudden thing, but they're um, very precipitously ordered to abolish Japan's national Shinto. Um, this happens on the air on American public radio, uh, and, that, um, and uh, it ends up being uh, precipitating a, a, a very interesting set of conceptual moves where the American quote-unquote, American idea of religious freedom is set up against this notion of national Shinto, um, which becomes the foil for religious freedom. So national Shinto is totalitarian, uh, religious freedom is egalitarian and emancipatory. What happens is that um, in order to justify this, um, state, the, the notion of national Shinto quickly becomes uh, reinvented as state Shinto, State Shinto performs political work as the foil for religious freedom, um, and because State Shinto is allegedly particularistic, religious freedom needs to be universalized. So the language of human rights comes to be very helpful for the American policymakers who are trying to say this is why it's important that we um, you know, give uh, Japanese people religious freedom. So that's the the, the basic contours. Uh, in chapter five, I focus a lot on the uh, what I call the creation and then the destruction of state Shinto. Uh, I say that uh, state Shinto had to be invented uh, so that it could be abolished. Um, and then in the subsequent chapters, I show how the occupiers are trying to convince Japanese people that they need this universal human right.
0: Um, in chapter six, uh, it, which is entitled uh, Who Wants Religious Freedom?, um, You're arguing that the occupation governance of religion uh, exhibits uh, some continuities with the wartime regime. Um and uh and this seems you know again to be sort of very central to the to the book's argument. And so I'd like I'd like to see if you could um sort of get some specific about the ways that occupation policies were um similar and and if there were any significant differences how they were different um from these wartime Japanese uh policies on religion. Um and I guess you know what you'd sort of think the, the significance of all that is.
1: Yeah, thanks for the question. Okay. Um so in the uh, pre-war period, and then especially during the war years, um, the Japanese state was engaging with what we would now think of as sort of civil society organizations, not as civil society organizations, but as, as what um, Gregory Kassa has called uh, uh, administered mass organizations. So they're sort of uh, managing um, interest groups, including religious groups, as these kinds of um, institutions and organizations that can support the war effort. So that's things like um, Buddhist organizations and Shinto organizations donating um, fighter planes to the war effort and things like that. Um, In the occupation period, these kinds of groups are disbanded, but then um, groups with basically the same organizational structure are are reconstituted uh, as uh, political pressure groups slash uh, sort of special interest groups. Um, so this is things like the Japanese Federation of Religions, um, you know the the Japanese Buddhist Federation, uh, the Jinja Honcho, which is you know the uh, the National Association of Shrines, uh, the Christian Kyodan I mentioned a little while ago, and so these groups um, become really helpful for the occupiers, just as they were helpful for the Japanese state. In both cases, the state. So I'm talking about the American military government versus the wartime Japanese state. In both cases, the state wants to promote a particular political objective. It wants to get messages from government down to the rank and file, including the grassroots. And it needs a mediating agent to do so. Um, And in the occupation, uh, the specific thing that the occupiers are trying to do is they're engaged in a pedagogical project of trying to teach the Japanese people to want religious freedom and indeed one of their policy objectives is to instill a desire for religious freedom in the Japanese people. This is an utterly quixotic objective because how do you ever make anybody want something? But um, because the, uh, the occupiers have this objective, they're casting about for how to do this. Now, if they just use the power of the state directly, and they go to people and they like bang on their doors and say, you must want religious freedom, then that's not very free. So they need to kind of make it indirect. And they do so by, um, you know, sort of collaborating with these um, renovated or reconfigured um, mass organizations, uh, like the Japanese Religious Federation, and they kind of use those as as ways to gather information about what's going on in the religious world but then they also use those organizations to disseminate uh, information about what counts as religious freedom now um, the other sort of main point of uh, of similarity but this is, this is also a bit of a, a difference uh, has to do with land reform and how that affects uh, religious organizations so at several points the Japanese uh, the Meiji state or um, and then uh, the Meiji constitutional state uh, engage in a practice of land reform where they're trying to change this longstanding arra- arrangement that goes back to the Tokugawa period, where um, large religious organizations would manage tracts of land um, that technically owned were owned by the government, but the religious organizations would use those tracts of land for revenue. So they would engage in forestry or farming, or they would sublease those um, tracts of land Uh, to uh, tenant farmers and so forth. Um, There are attempts to change this policy at several points uh, in the 70s, 1870s, 80s, in the 1920s, uh, again in the 1930s, and um, every time the state is trying to do this, uh, and we should add shrine mergers to this as well, it really screws up the economic fortunes of shrines and temples. Okay, so then um, when we get to the occupation, the occupiers have this fixed notion. I, I can't remember the name of the section, the agriculture and forestry or, or the National natural, natural resources division has decided that all plots of land will be divided up into parcels of 2.5 acres um, because they think that that will be the sort of economic engine that gets free enterprise going and, and so forth. Um, and this is terrible for religious organizations because these groups that had previously managed huge chunks of land that technically belong to the state suddenly find themselves destitute because they have no um, sources of income. And the occupiers are saying, well, real religion will make all of its money from donations from adherents. And, and religious uh, leaders are saying, yeah, we can't just, you know, about face 180 on this. Um, And so there's a lot of back and forth, not only between the occupiers and religious organizations, but even between um, the natural resources division and the religions division about what counts as religious freedom and what it means to, like, uh, promote freedom and and, you know the whether economic freedom supersedes religious freedom, which one is um, is uh, you know necessary for the other and so forth. Um, So uh, that's a point of continuity, but then as a another point of continuity, but then as a point of difference. We have this language of human rights um, which i was just talking about in regard to chapter five so the occupiers are trying to teach um japanese religious leaders that when the natural resources division is splitting up their large tracts of land that's out of respect for their uh status as religions which as you can imagine is a really hard sell and they're saying when we separate you from the state as much as possible that's because we respect you as religion and that's a really a major epistemic break from what had been normal in, in Japan before, where proximity to the state was generally valued as, as being a good thing for religious organizations. So uh, the occupiers are trying all of these different ways to to convince Japanese people that, um, that this is uh, not only normal, but it's way better than what they experienced before. And again, they go back to these... Um, uh, these transsectarian organizations uh, to sort of disseminate those messages. And then they also collaborate with the Ministry of Education, the Japanese Ministry of Education, which has jurisdiction over religious affairs and can therefore um, put forward this idea that, uh, that these uh, policy reforms are actually beneficial to religious groups.
0: So in uh, Chapter Seven, you continue with the uh, the question of sort of this you know, un- human rights discourse um as uh, as it relates to religious freedom um, and you, you argue that the the post war uh, sort of manifestation of religious freedom um, as a human right comes out of a really particular uh, sort of legal and and geopolitical situation that demanded, as you put it, a universalizing language. Um, and so, in this chapter, universal rights in unique circumstances, um, you're making an argument about the the, the again the, you know, uh, the the particular circumstances. So, what what were they, um, and how did they necessitate a sort of universalizing language? Um, and what was the function of that language?
1: Yes. Okay. So. Uh, The occupation was weird, not as far as occupations go, but just as uh, a legal situation, because we have two governments that are in charge of the same territory and in charge of the same population. And the sort of default is that one government dictates policy. That's the American military government and the other government enacts that policy. That's the Japanese government. Um, And so what that means is that. There's a bit of a tension in freedom talk um, with this situation, and there's a bit of a tension between the agendas and objectives of the two governments. Particularly problematic was the possibility that the American reforms would seem like an attempt to remake Japan in America's image, because uh, the Americans had been talking about these universal principles and so forth. As rationalizing their reforms um, and and so if they if they simply said, "Well, you have to basically become our fifty first state. oh sorry, it wouldn't have been fifty first at that point, but you have to become another state uh, then um, japan is is not a um, it's not a conquered enemy. it becomes a colony. And so the Americans are trying really hard to to stay away from just treating Japan as being part of America, even as they're, of course, incorporating Japan very actively into um, the sort of post-war geopolitical order and America's forward base in in East Asia and so forth. Okay, so um, as part of that, uh, and, and then along with that, I should say, Japanese elites are trying to um, align themselves with the occupation so that they can pursue their pet objectives. Um, Some of this has to do with legal objectives, some of it has to do with sort of cultural enlightenment stuff. Um, And so we have scholars of law like Minobe Tatsukichi, Uh, he's famous for the emperor as the organ of the state theory. We have scholars of religion like Kishimoto Hideo, uh, who plays a a major role in my book. Um, they're using their proximity to the occupiers and to the occupation to say what we had before was particularistic and problematic. Um, it was state Shinto, and that's bad. Let's get rid of it. Now we have religious freedom, which is universalistic, and it's premised on um, a shared uh, religiosity that, that is um, innate to all humans. So we have Japanese elites making this sort of claim. We have American policymakers making this sort of claim. And they're doing so as a way of showing that the occupation policies are about something more high-minded than rank American geopolitical interests, but they're actually about really emancipating the Japanese people. Now, we can, of course, take that uh, claim with a a huge grain of salt. um, But I think that what I'm, what I'm, what I was trying to get at in this chapter is that religious freedom. Um, gets treated by the occupiers as being the first human right, is the, 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 um, the right from which all other rights spring, because religion is supposed to be sitting at the core of every individual. And so because it's innate and because it's universal and because it's timeless, uh, religious freedom is something that can um, bind all of us together. And so we see um, these Japanese elites that I mentioned and then occupation officials working really hard to prove that religious freedom is indeed this sort of innate universal um, transhistorical uh, ideal that must be protected at all costs. Uh, and that allows the occupation eradication of state Shinto, um, what they called state Shinto, to appear normal and natural, and it also allows some of these other policy things like land reform to appear normal and natural because they can say, "Look, this isn't about us. Uh, this is about all of us." And uh, and I and I think that this is also a moment where we see, um, notably before the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is promulgated in '48, we already see in 1946 and '47 real serious work in putting teeth to that Rooseveltian idea of human rights or the four freedoms, like really trying to concretize it and make it real. So the strong claim that I make is that religious freedom becomes a human right in occupied Japan, because it had to, the occupiers needed it to be universal so that they didn't seem like they were just trying to convert all the Japanese people into Americans. Um, And then it's from there that we also see uh, you know the language of uni- of, of re- religious freedom popping up in the universal declaration and, and there are changes that go along with that conceptual changes that other historians have have traced i i want to be really clear here this is more genealogy than history and that i'm sure that there are lots of different origin stories we could tell for not only human rights but religious freedom as a human right but i think that the histories of human rights that i've read have entirely left out occupied Japan as one origin place for this and I think they've made a mistake in doing so occupied Japan was crucial to the understanding in um, the post-war not post-war period of uh, of, of um, religious freedom as human right and indeed in the book I treat it as one concept by putting all those words together with hyphen. So it's religious freedom as human right, one concept as opposed to just religious freedom more, more broadly conceived or more ambiguously conceived.
0: Yeah. I think, um, one of the, uh things that you you then go on to do in the the chapter is qualify this just a little bit and i hope i'm reading this correctly because you also write that uh the right to religious freedom that americans were willing to fight to protect was one premised on religion looking familiar enough that it could be recognized as valid um and and, and i think i mean i think this is um a a a as I said, as I've said, sort of a, a qualifier to your your larger point about the universality of religion, at, uh, you know, religious freedom uh, as a human right. Um, and, am I am I reading that correctly?
1: Yes. So I am very suspicious of rights talk. Uh, you know, I, I and and this is this becomes very clear in, in the epilogue to the book. But you know, as a Black American. Um, it's almost impossible to exist in America without being suspicious of rights talk because my ancestors were enslaved and, and um, to the extent that they were counted in America, in the American sort of legal imagination, they were counted as being less than human, you know, three-fifths human, non-human, uh, partially human, whatever. Um, and... Uh, I think that we see over the course of American history a very similar thing with religion. Catholics aren't really religious. Mormons aren't really religious. Jews aren't really religious. Buddhists aren't really religious. Muslims aren't really religious, right? And so as much as the Americans are offering this universalizing language and it all seems great and and, um, and we're in this new bright, shiny post-war moment, um, that is tempered by... Uh, the primacy of Protestant Christianity in the sort of American imagination of of what a good religion-state relationship looks like. So religion should be interior, it should be belief-centric, uh, it should be apolitical, although Protestants have never been apolitical, and so forth. Um, and And it's also premised on the Cold War uh, circumstances that are emerging right at this time with um, the anti-communist agenda, both as a matter of American foreign policy and then also as a matter of American domestic anxieties. So um, even as religious freedom as human right is being extended to Japanese people, Japanese religion needs to be reformed so that it fits within this vaguely Protestant centric understanding of religion and anything that doesn't fit. Um, doesn't get religious freedom. And uh, we see some of that playing out with occupiers being suspicious of certain religious groups. They're certainly suspicious of Shinto shrines and their priests. And so, um, uh, and then also some marginal movements. Um, and so I'm trying to point to these ways that the um, the realpolitik of, of, of uh, America in the early Cold War is, is affecting uh, all this. And, am- uh, ambitious or, or high-minded language of religious freedom as a human
0: right. Yeah. So you continue uh, in, in a somewhat similar vein in your final chapter, chapter eight, out of the spiritual vacuum, in the sense that um, you're continuing to look at how uh, the occupation affects uh, the sort of the universals, right? In the post-war. Um, and you talk about specifically about how the occupation uh, affected post-war religious studies um, in Japan and around the world in this final chapter. Um, and you argue that there were, fundamental contradictions within the concept of religious freedom itself, which you've obviously, uh, you know, talked about quite a bit, um, as imagined and implemented by the American occupation. Uh, But I wonder if you could uh, uh, draw that out a little bit more and then talk about what some of those consequences were uh, for post-war religious studies.
1: Yeah, so I start that chapter off with um, a, uh, a discussion of this, phrase that became really popular in the occupation was actually popularized by General MacArthur, which is that Japan in the wake of defeat was a spiritual vacuum. Um, Sometimes it also appeared as a moral vacuum. Um, And that Japanese people, uh, with the collapse of what the occupiers had come to call state Shinto, were now um, cast adrift. And if the occupiers didn't fill it with something then, um, you know, the the Japanese people would eventually all become communists. And so MacArthur's idea was uh, we have to make all the Japanese people Christians. Um, That was clearly a failed project. It was probably doomed from the outset. Um, But what we see here is scholars of religion really working hard to um, redefine religion uh, in a way that will allow, will sort of privilege an occupation Uh, Would privilege a notion of religious freedom, I should say, um, that is personal, elective, um, not based on familial commitments and and so forth. And um, because that was very different from the model of religiosity and also uh, models of religious freedom that had existed in the pre-war and wartime period, uh, the occupiers and their Japanese counterparts had to do a lot of work um, to do this. Now, I argue... That religious studies, you know, scholars of religious studies like myself were at the forefront of this. I also argue that, you know, with the benefit of historical hindsight, their very prescriptive agendas where they're basically teaching people that this is good religion and that's bad religion is terrible religious studies work. I mean, the one thing that scholars of religion are not supposed to do is to tell people, you know, that this is good religion and that's bad religion. And yet that's exactly what was happening in the occupation period and then in the, say, like decade after it. Um, So I show how this played out um, through several different visions of good and bad religion. Um, I already talked about state Shinto uh, and so I'll, I'll sort of skip over that. It, that one's pretty obvious. I draw connections between the state Shinto of the occupation period and words like Islamism that are used by policymakers today, where somehow the connection of Islam with politics is, is understood to somehow um, uh, silly the, the purity of the religion. Uh, I talk about the, the category of new religions or new religious movements, which has been a really big part of post-war Japanese religious studies. And I show that that category actually emerged out of an interaction between um, representatives of marginalized religious movements uh, who were, you know, apologetically trying to get the occupiers to treat them seriously. The occupiers respond positively, and then they convince um, you know, scholars to start using this new language of new religions or new religious movements, whereas previously these groups had been called like um, lascivious heresies or, or um, upstart religions and things like that. Uh, those are like Inchi Jakyo and, and Shinko Shukyo, pejorative terms. Um, and then I also talk about Buddhist war responsibility, uh, which is a good tie in with the themes of Chapter Four, where there's this normative uh, notion that develops in the post war that real Buddhists. Should not support war because, of course, one of the main Buddhist precepts is nonviolence. Um, but uh, I, I show that this notion of Buddhist war responsibility continues to perform political work um, by structuring a notion of good and bad religion that suggests that basically anything that Buddhists were doing before the occupiers arrived was um, benighted and misguided, and that thanks to the occupiers, Buddhists finally learned. To um, situate themselves vis-a-vis the Japanese state in the right way, um, and so these are things that not only uh, affected um, Japan in the immediate um, uh, post-defeat period, but they have had echoes that continue to reverberate within Japan, including the debates about, say, like the Abe administration and uh, the, you know the close ties between Abe and some. Um groups like Shinto groups like the uh the Shinto Association for Spiritual Leadership, Shinto Seiji Denmei. Um uh the Buddhist war responsibility thing has echoes in some um relatively normative Buddhist studies scholarship. Um the new religion stuff uh continues to affect the ways that people talk about marginal movements today. Um and then it also has echoes and ramifications outside of Japan. So I talked about the sort of functional similarity between the pejorative word state Shinto and the pejorative word Islamism, um, which suggests that the real religion was perverted by its association with politics. Uh, And so this shows that the occupation has um, structured not only post-war Japanese political life, but in many ways has structured a global imaginary about what counts as good religion, what counts as bad religion, and I think we really need to extricate ourselves from that to live in a more just and humane world.
0: Yeah, and um, I, we've, we've, we're running pretty long here and I can hear that uh, perhaps your, your voice is gonna give out sooner or later, but I appreciate you taking the time to uh, to talk with us. Um, if, you, if you have another second, I'd love to ask you uh, what it is that you're working on these days or what projects you have in the pipeline.
1: Yeah, um, so I'm working on a companion volume to Faking Liberties that's tentatively titled Difficult Subjects. It picks up historically right where Faking Liberty is left off uh, in the occupation period. Um, And it looks at the ways that religion uh, appears in uh, public schooling in both Japan and the United States. And I'm interested particularly in the ways that um, stakeholders will code things as being religion or as not religion so they can get those things into schools or keep those things out of schools. Uh, So that includes things like uh, the reintroduction or the introduction of morality time uh, in Japanese public schools in 1958, um, black and white reel-to-reel films with morality lessons for American school kids um, in the ni- in the 40s and 50s. I'm also looking at things that are more contemporary, um, like yoga and mindfulness in American public schools. Uh, the the duty of public school teachers in Japan to uh, stand for or sing the national anthem. And there's a big component. Um, of race in in this project as well. Uh, I'm looking at things like segregation academies that uh, in the wake of the Brown versus Board of Education decision uh, used uh, religious institutions as ways to sequester um, white school children from the polluting influence of of their black peers in public schools. Um, So it's a wide ranging project, but um, maybe from my description of some of those themes, you can see that there's a lot of stuff that picks up directly from Uh, faking liberties in terms of the question of how religion is defined where do we draw the line between public and private and um, I I guess one way that I've thought about this is that if faking liberties was focused primarily on religious freedom as a right then difficult subjects focuses on religion and how that relates to duties uh, for people in a democracy
0: yeah great that sounds fascinating and I hope uh, when when it uh, becomes available as a book that you'll uh, come back and join us on the podcast again
1: I'd really like that
0: Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for joining us and take care.
1: Thank you.